This is the National Medicine Symposium from the Canberra National Convention Centre. My name is Jill Thistlethwaite. I'm chairing this session. I'm a medical advisor at MPS Medicine Wise um, and a GP and a health professional educator. Um, and the format of this morning is that we have six speakers, six experts on various aspects of antimicrobial resistance. Each speaker has seven minutes to give a short presentation. Uh, and I'm going to be very strict about the seven minutes. Uh, so they, they have been warned. Um, then at the end of the presentations, uh, I'll get all the speakers to come and sit on the panel and we'll open to the floor for questions. You know, it's that time of the morning where we want to be provocative, challenging, put our experts on the spot. They are experts, they should be able to cope with this. So let's get a really, really good discussion going. Please do tweet. There was quite a really interesting Twitter storm going on this morning at the plenaries. Um, really makes life interesting. Well, it does for me, maybe not for everyone, but uh, uh, Jason, do you want to remind people of the hashtag? The hashtag is uh, NMS2018. So um, those people who want to do other things electronically can just pretend they're tweeting. So you have our permission to do that. Right, so let's get started. This is the first presentation of the um, antimicrobial resistance stream. There is another stream meeting tomorrow. Um, so I'd like to introduce our first speaker who is Sharon Appleyard, and she is First Assistant Secretary, Office of Health Protection, Department of Health. So thank you, Sharon. Thank you very much. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'd just like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today, the Ngunnawal people. If I could acknowledge Elders past, present and emerging, and any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here with us today. So, Antimicrobial resistance is one of the biggest threats to human health today, and it does present a complex challenge for Australia and all countries around the world. We are particularly concerned about the rate at which bacteria are becoming resistant to antibiotics. If not addressed, AMR could take modern medical practice back to the pre-antibiotic era with simple infections causing significant harm. AMR can lead to long hospital stays, higher medical costs, and of course, of most concern, death. The main cause of AMR is, is antibiotic use, or should I say, inappropriate antimicrobial use. We are overusing antibiotics in Australia today. We are the eighth highest user of antibiotics among 28 member nations of the OECD, and our usage is nearly double that of countries that prescribe the lowest rate of antibiotics. As an example, in 1617, over 10 million Australians were supplied at least one systemic antibiotic through the PBS, and this equates to 41% of the Australian population. Reducing antibiotic use where it is safe and appropriate to do so, and I think that's a really important point, is a priority for all Australians. And we can play a role in making sure that our precious antibiotics remain effective. To date, Australia hasn't encountered the levels of resistance seen in some other countries. However, there are definitely issues that require our urgent attention and others that we will continue to monitor closely. One thing of note is that we are seeing increased rates of AMR in the community in Australia. 
For example, a report published by the Australian Group on AMR in February this year found that about 75% of episodes of bloodstream infection reported have been caused by Staphylococcus aureus and were found to originate in the community rather than hospitals. Of these, 19% were antibiotic resistant. The framework for Australia's response to AMR has been established by our first national AMR strategy, which was released by the Ministers for Health and Agriculture in June 2015. And the goal of the strategy is, of course, to minimise the development and spread of AMR and to ensure the continued availability of effective antimicrobials. The strategy does take a One Health approach, recognising that action needs to be coordinated across all sectors where antimicrobials are used, including human health, animal health, agriculture and food sectors. And the strategy outlines priority action areas across seven key objectives, and I'm sure there'd be a lot of people in the audience familiar with these today. Um, some of those that I'll highlight are communication, education and training, stewardship, surveillance, infection prevention and control research, um, and of course, international engagement and governance. Over the past few years, we've been working to implement activities under each of these strategy objectives, and we do have an implementation plan, which was released in November 16. Um, a lot of the activities in those plans were a stock take of what's being undertaken across a lot of sectors, including government and non-government. The strategy is overseen, importantly, by the Australian Government Chief Medical Officer, Professor Brendan Murphy, and also the Australian Government Chief Veterinary Officer, Dr Mark Shipp. And we have an Australian technical and advisory group on AMR, which is chaired by both of those officials. So the Australian government has committed more than $27 million over the 2013-14 to 19-20 period on our response to AMR. And nearly 12 of those million um, over three years were to develop an, the national AMR strategy and, of course, the AURA surveillance system, which I'll talk a little bit more about, more importantly, Robert Will from the Commission on Safety and Quality. Um, we have also um, developed an AMR website um, uh, piloting a national antimicrobial prescribing survey in general practice, which Kirsty will talk to us about, um, and funding has been provided under the Medical Research Future Fund, um, where AMR is one of the research priorities in six, for the years 2016 to 18. Um, the funding that I've just mentioned doesn't include the significant funding through the NH and MRC for AMR-related research and, of course, NPS MedicineWise and the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare, who undertake a number of critical activities, particularly to improve, improve antimicrobial stewardship. Our first progress report highlights some of the activities undertaken by Australia in the first two years, which is 15 to 17, as well as challenges and areas for future action. However, it doesn't attempt to capture the full range of activities underway in Australia. Um, it is hoped that on our website we've got a, a research um, directory where we're really trying to encourage people to, to provide details of their research and links to their research so we can capture a broad range of initiatives. So while I don't have the time to provide um, an update today on all of the activities that have been completed or underway, um, as I mentioned before, it is important to point out that um, it, these activities do cover the whole One Health spectrum. Um, in the following slides, I'll hi highlight progress in three particular areas, which is enhancement to the Aura surveillance system, the new website that I mentioned, and some of the work being undertaken to improve antibiotic use in general practice. Before I move on, though, I would let, like to let you know that the Australian Technical Advisory Group on AMR is working with the Department of Health and Agriculture to review and update the importance ratings and summary of antimicrobial uses in human and animal health in Australia. 
These importance ratings provide information on antibacterials for use in humans alone, animals alone, and also humans and animals. And it is important because it does give us a picture of um, antimicrobial use um, across the, the country in Australia. And they are expected to be finalised and publicly released in mid-2018. And I think a lot of people will be looking forward to that. So um, as I mentioned, comprehensive, coordinated and effective surveillance of AMR is a key national priority. Surveillance is absolutely essential to understand the magnitude, distribution and impact of antimicrobial resistance and antimicrobial usage, as well as to identify emerging issues and trends. So as such, this has been a key focus. So the Aura surveillance system has been a key focus of the national AMR strategy. And we have provided significant funding to the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare for the establishment and continued enhancement of the Aura surveillance system. And I won't go into too much detail, of course, other than, than um, you can see here a picture of, of the um, eight streams of the data pie for Aura, um, which does provide an integrated picture of patterns and trends for AMR and usage in Australia. And um, one major output of the system is a report that analyses all available data on AMR and antimicrobial usage. And there have been two reports produced so far in 16 and 17. Um, some of the important um, component parts uh, of this uh, are produced by, so it's a, it's a, a system, a, a sort of a, um, a system that we bring together from component parts, um, including the National Antimicrobial prescribing survey, the antimicrobial usage surveillance program, and there's a national alert system for critical microbial resistances as well. Um, there are still gaps in this data and we're continuing to uh, improve, but over time um, there are plenty of um, opportunities and scope for the system to develop. Um, in the longer term, what we are hoping to achieve is an integrated one health surveillance system that brings together data from all sources. We're not there yet. This, the focus of this surveillance is on human health. Um, and, but, and this um, hope that we have is also recognised, so it's not only um, surveillance data from across sectors, um, but also looking at, it's one thing to identify critical resistances, but the other important part of that um, piece is what are you going to do about it? So what does the response piece look like when you do identify a critical resistance? So funding by the Australian Government has recently been provided to the Safety and Quality Commission to engage a dedicated epidemiologist to lead outbreak response network pilot, working with states and territories to improve linkages between AMR reporting and public health responses. Um, I'm going to ask, have to ask you to wrap up in about 30 seconds, sure, please. Thanks. no problems at all. So I'll just flick through by encouraging everybody to have a look at the dedicated AMR website. It's a, it's a really important resource that um, covers a lot of what we are doing in this country and, um, and it's the first time that we have had um, such a website. Um, and just to let you know that a key focus, and happy to talk about this in the questions, is, is the work that we are doing in improving antibiotic use in general practice, noting what I said before about high, community prescri uh, uh, high prescribing rates in the community and also the resistant bacteria in the community. Um, challenges and gaps, they're there, we're onto them. They're going to be considered in the next version of the strategy, which will be for the years um, 2019 to about 2022 or 23, and be starting um, work in earnest on that this year. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Sharon. There's a lot to talk about. Um, if I could now invite Dr. Robert Herks. Herks? Yes, is that right? Herx, yeah. Um, Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare.
to speak. So thank you very much. Sharon's actually uh, done a nice segue into my talk. So I just want to talk to you about the Aura surveillance system and where it came from and wh why it's configured like it is and where it's going. And I guess one of the important things that Sharon uh, commented on was that um, we've got this pie looking at two different things. One is antibiotic use. And antibiotic use really for humans occurs in two settings in primary care, general practice, dentistry, and then in hospitals. Okay, so we've got both passive and active surveillance with our partners trying to look across a whole continuum of care for human health. And our partners, many of them were long established, and what the Commission did was did a scoping study, looked to see what could be enhanced from our partners. Now, as I'm an intensive care doctor, all right, the sensible thing would have been to say, hey, Australia, let's just set up a surveillance system across the whole of Australia. And why can't we do that? We can't do that because each of the, each of the jurisdictions, each of the states and territories run their own health system. They're responsible. And you can't have the federal, federated uh, system work without having lots of component parts all working together. So we have, have a collaborative that has uh, lots of organisations, Agar, uh, NORSP, NAPS, PBS and, and, uh, and uh, the REPAT PBS, all feeding data into a system that looks at antibiotic use in Australia or antimicrobial use in Australian patients and uh, resistance in Australia. For antibiotic use, there actually have been some significant improvements uh, in surveillance over the time that the Aura project has been going. There are currently 320 public and private hospitals uh, submitting uh, national anti antimicrobial prescribing data in the NAPS study. That represents 83% of principal referral hospitals and 74% of large acute public hospitals, so a very large, broad sample of antibiotic use across our hospital sector. Um, another study, NORSP, has managed to get all principal referral hospitals in Australia contributing data to it, and 85% of, of large hospitals, and I'll show you some data from this in a second that suggests actually uh, antimicrobial stewardship in our hospitals does appear to be working, and the rate of use of antibiotics is coming down. There are still significant problems with the choice of antibiotics. The wrong people are choosing broader spectrum things when a narrow spectrum antibiotic could be done, and probably even more problematic, uh, uh, clinicians are leaving patients on antibiotics long after they could have been stopped. And that's particularly the case in um, perioperative prophylaxis, unfortunately, and in intensive care, hands up for me. Um, so since 2012, you can see there, there's been a 2.5% drop off in antibiotic use in Australian hospitals. And as I say, I think that's a credit to all the people who are doing antimicrobial stewardship in our system and very important. However, in the community, on over 47% of Australians have one or more antibiotic prescription per annum, and that rate adjusted for population is continuing at about the same rate. So we haven't had, despite a lot of effort trying to get educate both uh, patients and clinicians around not prescribing antibiotics for inappropriate use in primary care, the use in primary care, unfortunately, hasn't yet budged down. And that's a major concern for our system because, as Sharon told us, there's significantly increasing rates of resistance coming out of the community and, in fact, going into the hospitals. So you're getting people with resistant organisms repopulating the hospitals rather than the other way around, which it used to be. 
Now, one of the important things is antibiotic resistance affects everyone. Now, this slide is five-year cuts of patient cohorts. The blue down, down the bottom is uh, carbapenemase-resistant uh, enterobacteria. And you can see that the rates affect everyone. Kids under, under five years old have resistance, as do uh, increasing numbers of people as you get older. So a significant problem across our population. Um, and uh, later on when you see the slide, you'll see all the, I, I came into this saying, gosh, microbiologists have lots of abbreviations. There are some wonderful abbreviations for all the resistances. Now, Aura 2017 was published, as Sharon said. It identified a series of areas that action needed to be taken on. One is, at the moment, we have a sample of not 100% ascertainment of what's going on with antibiotic use or antimicrobial resistance in our community, and we need to increase this, the um, level of surveillance, and we also need to get more longitudinal data so we can work out what's happening over time. As I said, there's reasonable data to suggest that hospitals are improving, that hasn't yet happened in primary care. So we need to uh, intensify our efforts to, with our partners to reduce unnecessary prescribing. We need to improve the appropriateness of what is prescribed. We need to uh, strengthen infection control practices to minimise the spread of VRE and also MRSA, in particular community MRSA. Uh, we need to um, implement strategies to control carbapenemase producing enterobacteria and continue to monitor gonococcus infection outbreaks, which at least gets the press interested. And so uh, with our stakeholders over the next couple of years, we're going to try and improve those areas. There's lots more needs to be done. Clearly, this is an area that has potentially major impact on our community, on our community safety. We need more evidence-based guidelines. We need further development of electronic audit tools nationally standardised and supportive. And one of the things that I think is really important if you're in a hospital that's implementing an EMR, we heard a lot about in the first session, is you make sure that your EMR has tools to support antimicrobial stewardship. Don't let that be left out. Uh, we're expanding national standards for AMS to ensure AMS function, functions uh, independently or implemented within the EMR. Uh, tracking antimicrobial use and indication and duration so that we can get some handles on that with maybe some uh, smart decision support. There's a lot of extra research going on in the sector to try and understand how we might influence all of this. And if you'd like to go to our website, you'll find the, uh, the two aura reports that are there. There's a wealth of data there, and we hope uh, that we're going to, in the future, publish many reports uh, hopefully, ultimately, with some longitudinal data to say that something's improving. Thank you. Thank you. That was, that was impeccable timing. That was amazing. <laughs> um, I'd like to now invite Rachel Gray to the lectern. Uh, Rachel is the AMR clinical lead um, at MPS Medicine Wise. All right, good morning, everybody. Um, so I'm going to present some additional data um, from NPS that offers a bit of an extra insight to some of the data we've already had presented today. And again, it's sort of building on um, what Robert and Sharon have sort of um, alluded to so far. So I've got sort of three data sources to present. Um, firstly, some PBS data analysis that we did at NPS. Um, secondly, some medicine insight data, which was mainly sort of fed into Aura already, and also some consumer data insights from successive consumer surveys that we've done at NPS. So first of all, um, 
MPS performed an antibiotic utilisation analysis. We obtained um, prescribed level, level PBS data from the Department of Human Services um, just for concessional beneficiaries. Um, and the reason for this was that it was just the most complete data set that we could get um, on um, antibiotics. Um, we obtained the data between um, January 1997 and June 2015. And from that data, we extracted um, records from, for 13 antibiotics mostly, um, primarily those used in um, respiratory tract infections. And using that data, we sort of broke it down um, between um, GP prescribers and also non-GP prescribers. So um, the GP group included um, GPs, GP trainees, and also non-vocationally registered um, doctors. And then the non-GP group was primarily uh, specialists of various descriptions, uh, dermatologists, paediatricians, um, lots of outpatient and um, probably discharge dis uh, prescribing as well. Um, and then the outcome was the total number of dispensed um, prescriptions per month per GP. And what we actually found um, with this analysis is, uh, firstly, with um, graphs of antibiotic use, you'll notice the very clear um, seasonal trend that you get with antibiotic use, which very much peaks um, in the winter months associated with respiratory tract infection prescribing. But just looking at just GP data and just um, these selected antibiotics, we've actually um, started to notice a slight downward trend in GP prescribing for respiratory tract infections, which is really encouraging. Um, this graph comes from um, the Aura report in 2017, and it's based on um, Medicine Insight data. So just for those who aren't aware, Medicine Insight um, is a data set that's administered by NPS MedicineWise that extracts de-identified longitudinal data from GP clinical information systems to support quality improvement um, initiatives, both at the practice level and also um, more um, in a, on a high level as well. So from this, I think also they're starting to sort of see a, see a slight downward trend in um, GP prescribing. I think um, just to point out the differences between this data set and then the PBS analysis, was this data being from GP clinical software, it's um, antibiotics, that were prescribed, not necessarily dispensed. Um, also, this is for all systemic antimicrobials um, as, as well. Then just in addition, some sort of extra sort of consumer insights. So NPS performs um, consumer surveys, not, not annually, but um, we've done them over, over some sort of time periods. And, and using these and using with, um, the surveys that have um, used consistent questions, we can then compare the um, you know, the, the answers, sorry, um, from year on year. And so what you'll find, so those first two questions are very much sort of general knowledge questions about antibiotics and antimicrobial resistance. And we're sort of finding that general knowledge about these things is increasing um, with consumers. However, there is still a lot of sort of misunderstanding um, about antibiotics and antimicrobial resistance. For instance, um, this final question, when people take antibiotics for cold and flu, the antibiotics help them recover faster than if they hadn't taken them. So only 40% disagreed with that statement. So that's that's the desired response. So that's 60% um, either agreeing with that, so thinking the antibiotics help them recover faster, or um, don't know. So there's some um, still some significant misunderstandings. When we ask some, some more specific questions about um, sort of, especially about respiratory tract infection and symptom duration, um, this was a survey just done with sort of parents of children uh, under 14. And we found that certainly parents seem to underestimate, underestimate the duration of respiratory tract infections in their kids. So they thought that sort of sore throats and um, earaches should last around four days and common colds and coughs around six days. And importantly, they will bring their child to see the doctor on or about the day they feel that that respiratory tract infection should have, um, 
should have been recovered from. Um, so they're underestimating and then also, um, you know, sort of coming to see the doctor, which is fine, but then sort of 60% want diagnosis or advice, but you're getting a third um, to a quarter um, actually sort of expecting an antibiotic for those conditions. With airache, it's even, even more, so over 50% expect an antibiotic um, when bringing their child to the doctor for um, an airache. And just um, lastly, so again, um, the results from the sort of the 2017 consumer survey, again, we're getting more um, consumers that have heard of antimicrobial resistance, which is great, and more thinking that in terms of the timelines, it's affecting them sooner rather than sort of some distant time point in the future. However, more people in the survey last year would um, ask a doctor for an antibiotic for cold and flu, whereas we had sort of started to make some progress um, with that response. So that was a little bit disappointing, but I guess it shows that, um, that um, uh, consumer understanding about AMR and antibiotics is increasing, but it is still really quite variable. Um, and I think it also shows that consumers often underestimate acute respiratory tract infections, the duration, also the severity, and they overestimate the benefit of antibiotics for those conditions. But there is some encouraging trends coming through in um, GP prescribing for um, respiratory tract infections. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. Some, some really interesting findings there that I'm sure we'll want to discuss later. Um, and now we have Dr. Heath Kelly from Therapeutic Guidelines. So I'm giving this talk on behalf of the antibiotic expert group of, of which I was the chair. This is a process that's been going on for about 18 months. So here are the members listed in alphabetical order by given name. And that's because we're a collegial, informal <laughs> group. But of course, we're also very uh, focused and robust. Uh, one of the members of the antibiotic expert group is here in the audience. I'll point to her now, <laughs> Kirsty. And the editors are all here as well. So what evidence do we need for antibiotic therapy? And this really follows on a lot from the, the talks we've just heard. Are antibiotics indicated for the condition? Now, sore throat we heard in the last talk. Sore throat is predominantly a viral illness in children, but can be viral in adults. It's also a bacterial illness, but the bacterial illness is often self-limited. On the other hand, if it's a streptococcal sore throat in an indigenous person, you want to give penicillin. So you've got this one extreme where you should not give antibiotics, and the other extreme where you must give antibiotics. So it's not an easy choice to make. So then we have to ask ourselves which antibiotics are active against the likely pathogens. So earlier this week, we spent a lot, a lot of time revisiting what antibiotics we, we should prescribe in, or we should recommend for prescription in urinary tract infection, and wondering whether antibiotics with a, a specific urinary action should prevail over antibiotics which have a broader spectrum. So th things like trimethoprim and nitrofurantoin, as opposed to Keflex and Augmentin. And uh, I can't tell you the results of that because we're still, <laughs> we're still going, but I must say it involved the antibiotic group in, in discussion over quite a long period of time and was needed to be revisited. I, noticed, I note that the World Health Organization and many of the international groups have gone with the nitrofurantoin trimethoprim type of option. Of course, antimicrobial resistance is a concern. We're probably going to continue to recommend trimethoprim for uncomplicated urinary tract infection as one of the first-line drugs, but there, we know from the aura data there is quite a bit of resistance, E. coli resistance to trimethoprim. However, <clears throat> these data are probably not taken from the persons to whom we're prescribing the drug, which is um, you know, people with the first infection, uh, you know, 
well, sorry, women, women with the first infection, usually. So appropriate dose route and duration of therapy, each of these things could be a randomized controlled trial. The appropriate dose, where we're arguing with ourselves about how much keftriaxone do we give to people who are sick and not so sick, we're stuck on one gram, two grams, sometimes we go to four grams. We're, we're um, talking about benzoyl penicillin, the first drug we ever had, what dosage we'd be using in sick kids and not so sick kids. It's not clear, the guidelines are inconsistent and we're doing consistency review of that. The route, can we use oral antibiotics instead of intravenous antibiotics in relatively sick people if their oral antibiotics have good uh, bioavailability? And duration of therapy, I'll have a little talk about that in a minute. And this is really about antimicrobial stewardship. So stewardship's are an incre incredibly important part of our discussion. So in, in establishing the, the guidelines, we review the previous guidelines as a starting point, and I guess we take a conservative approach and we don't want to change the guidelines unless there's a good reason. We look at international guidelines. Some of those people have done the homework for us in terms of reviewing the evidence, but we consider the relevance to Australia. We look at systematic reviews and specifically the Cochrane collection of data. We search for critical original research papers, usually in the last four years since the last um, edition of the guidelines. Uh, we look for trials, but we also consider observational studies. Uh, it's a team effort to collect the data and extract evidence, but I, we have to confess that it's not done in a systematic way. Then when that evidence is presented to the expert group, there's lively, as Kirsty will so, uh, <laughs> tell you, there's some lively discussion and sometimes the person who's presenting the evidence doesn't get her or his way <laughs> so that it, it is a consensus view. So just, just one little example on duration of therapy. That's a, the first dot point is about 113 cases of meningococcal meningitis published in The Lancet in 1938. We never reduced the, the uh, antibiotic until the temperature had been normal for a week. And Harry Dowling, um, in a paper by Podetsky, who's obviously interested in this area, I know you can read, but I'm going to read it to you anyway. The duration of treatment just evolved. There was no rationale for any single length of time. We saw how long it took for the temperature to come down and gave antibiotics until it did, and then some. Duration was unimportant in light of what came before. If we treated a few extra days, who cared? We always wanted to be sure. So that's the sort of history we're dealing with. Um, Rudetsky, in a later paper, noted that medical textbooks often recommend 7, 10, or 14-day durations for various infections. I've got an anecdote which I might skip over, but if we've got time in the questions, there's a very entertaining presentation at Australian Society of Infectious Diseases earlier this month about how this is, we still prescribe in multiples of 5, 7, and 10 days, or 5 and 7 days. So just looking at contemporary evidence for duration of therapy, and the 10-day rule was established for streptococcal sore throat and um, carriage. So we know we can treat uncomplicated cystitis uh, in children and women for a period between three to five days, and that's based on Cochrane database systematic reviews. We can treat low-severity community-acquired pneumonia in children for three days. It seems extraordinary we can treat low-severity community-acquired pneumonia in three days, but we want to treat streptococcal sore throat for 10 days. Uh, community-acquired pneumonia in adults, a bit longer, but still probably a lot shorter time than people have been treating in the past. An intra-abdominal infection after adequate source control for only five days, and that's based on you know, a fairly recent paper, 2015. The last dot point is about um, 
a review of observational studies showing that shorter and fewer antibiotic courses are associated with decreased resistance in the patient. And here's, here's some interim examples of evidence gaps in the, uh, the antibiotic version that's going to be published. Streptococcal pharyngitis, I've mentioned that. Prevalence of MRSA throughout Australia, you'd think we'd know that, but there are a whole lot of disparate sources of data around the, Robert talked to that. The, these data exist, but they're not all, they don't all exist in one place, so we've got a plan for that. And then the last dot point is a, a more complicated, um, this is a new topic in uh, antibiotic 16, and it's clear there are no data on the optimal treatment for these, optimal duration of treatment for this complicated infection. At seven minutes and 35 seconds. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> you have to thank your other panel members for being a bit shorter as well. So, you know, it's a collaborative effect, and we're, okay. we're uh, coming, we're going to have the total amount of time the same. So we're, we're due okay. for publication in 2000, <laughs> early 2009. Um, so, uh, our penul penultimate speaker is Associate Professor Kirsty Boozing of the National Centre for Antimicrobial Stewardship. Thank you. So I'll try to be quick. So I thought I might open just with um, orientating people around what the National Centre for Antimicrobial Stewardship is, because some people may not know. It's an NHMRC-funded centre for research excellence that's multidisciplinary and that's focused on health services research. So our overriding aim is to look at ways to deliver better care and translate evidence to point of care. And when we put NCAS together, we wanted to get a better understanding of antimicrobial prescribing and specifically to understand what's currently going on, what are the problems, what interventions work to address these problems, and can we implement them and sustain them to maintain change. We've got six streams within NCAS, so we take a one health focus. We have streams within veterinary practice and um, livestock and food production, and then across community general practice, residential aged care, rural hospitals specifically, and then tertiary hospitals. And what we've learned with our, our researchers working in these streams is there's lots of common themes that work across them all and there are learnings that we can share. And in the talk today, I'm, I'm really going to reflect on some of those common themes. So the overriding challenge is that antimicrobial use is very common in all of these sectors. It's part of everyday practice and people are attached to what they do. We're trying to change their behaviour and that's difficult. Um, and there are lots of stakeholders. This is a complex um, environment and we need lots of coordination and, and trying, trying to put forward a coherent message. Anyone who works in this sector knows about behaviour change and I've tried to summarise it in one slide, saying really I, I think this, this structure works very well wherever you're working, that we really need to be addressing knowledge, attitudes and then barriers and enablers. So we talk about appealing to the mind, the heart and making people more able to do what they need to do. So this framework for AMS I've found very helpful for me and there are four key um, uh, things within it and I was interested to learn that having worked with this for a little while, it aligns very well with what the CDC came up with when they put together their framework. So you'll see some um, similarities with what's in the graphic across on the right hand side but I just wanted to step through these four things if I may just to give some examples. So clearly I think the first thing wherever you're working is leadership and that can come from external drivers like government or professional colleges, standards for example, those types of things, or from local leaders within the organisation, the people who establish and sustain the local culture. I've learned that organisational culture is critical um, that, and that it can support antimicrobial stewardship and really it's about setting the collective values, beliefs and principles. Um, around what you expect of people who work in that setting. And we've all seen examples of commitment posters, 
um, that illustrate this very well. Um, and external drivers that come from groups like the Commission for Safety and Quality in Healthcare that define what we expect good care to look like, I think are critically important. And you, many of you will know about these clinical care standards that are intended to apply across the whole healthcare sector. Education was the second theme. And I think what I've learned is wherever you're working, um, you've got to have a focus both on patients and prescribers and other healthcare professionals. Um, so as an example for what goes on in general practice, many of you will have seen um, patient-focused information. But then when we're talking about prescriber-focused information, um, it's got to be about um, clinical information, guidelines for point of care use, like the therapeutic guidelines that he's just spoken about, but also I think um, um, educating people about communication skills so that they can deliver this information in a more meaningful way to their patients. And there are some examples of um, online self-directed learning um, as well as fact sheets and things that people have done to try to make this easy for prescribers to, to access. Interventions, well, I think this is really very, very important. And what this does, while education looks at knowledge and attitude, so people know what they want to do, what, know what they should be doing and want to do that, um, interventions is all around making it them able to do what, what you want them to do to, to improve their prescribing behaviour. So addressing the enablers and barriers within clinical workflow, with remembering that wherever these clinicians are, they're busy people in a complex workplace. And I've sort of tried to divide some of these into prescriber-focused and patient-focused, um, and I'm guessing that Mika's going to talk about a lot of these in the next talk, so I'm not going to go into them in any detail, except to say that they, they can be restrictive, for example, around authorisation to access particular drugs, or um, uh, persuasive, so giving people access to management algorithms or computerised decision support to help them find what they need at that point in time. And the thing that I guess I've focused, my team has focused most on is measurement, evaluation and feedback. And the key learning is that it's really got to be meaningful to the prescriber so that what you're telling them is credible. It's got to be relevant, clinically relevant, and it needs to be delivered near real time. Um, we know when we're talking about antimicrobial use that we've got information that um, Robert presented around volumes of consumption and, and we've all seen things around drug use by indication where you can reflect on concordance with guidelines. But we've learnt from prescribers that what, what is more meaningful to them and where we've tried to take a lot of our measurement and evaluation is into this sphere of appropriateness, which tries to take clinical information into account so that a prescriber can say, look, my patient is different and I didn't prescribe according to the guidelines, but I have a justifiable reason why. And in that sense, we would still evaluate that as an appropriate prescription. Um, the National Antimicrobial Prescribing Survey is something our team have worked on for some time. We were most advanced in the hospital setting and then we moved across into the residential aged care setting. And we've evolved to the point where we can issue public reports. Um, I think um, while all of these public reports are incredibly important for us to reflect on, um, what makes the NAPS most important to the people on the ground is the fact that it's used as a quality improvement tool for them in real time. So they put their data in and they get a report straight back about prescribing in their practice that they can use today and that they can compare their practice with other practices. So that's why they do it. Um, they don't necessarily do it to contribute data to the big annual report, even though we all find this very meaningful. So issues with measurement, we've learnt lots of things about the hurdles that are in our way with this. One of the key hurdles in community practice, and I won't go into great detail, but just to say the indication is a struggle to get hold of. 
Electronic extraction is difficult because the EMR dedicated fields for this are um, inadequately uh, filled most of the time um, and there's free text that ends up looking like gobbledygook. Um, we've done the GP NAPs that Sharon alluded to, which was a very um, complex process where we interrogated progress notes to try to tease out what was going on. The indication was objectively identifiable in about 77% of cases there, and we could probably infer it in, in a great majority more than that as well. Um, but it, it was far better than what actually could be electronically extracted, which was only about 20% of the time. Um, I've reflected on the fact that we focus on appropriateness and that we try to carefully analyse and communicate the information back in real time and importantly propose action in response. So when we feed back to a site we try to identify somewhere between one and three actions that they might want to focus on in their practice. And my last point was that I've learnt that AMS needs to be multidisciplinary wherever you are and I thought I might just mention a couple of the often forgotten groups that are really, really important. Um, the microbiologist has a real major impact upon how people prescribe, particularly in community practice. And these are just really lovely illustrations that a colleague, John Ferguson, provided um, around things that can, a micro lab can put on their reports to help guide a GP when they're, they're choosing what to prescribe or indeed how to interpret the results. So um, explicitly telling them that they're... Um, their micro looks like it's a contaminant rather than a real infection, um, explicitly telling them about common errors that might be made for particular pathogens, or the very important um, practice of selective reporting of susceptibility. So you don't release meropenem susceptibility if the isolate is susceptible to penicillin and they're not likely to need it. Um, so if you could... Yep. So the pharmacist um, is a major part of the team and we all know that they need to be providing a consistent message um, and can help create the community culture. The nurses in aged care are critically important. They're both conductors of care and brokers of information. And the last slide I was going to mention was just the role of the consumer and in empowering them to share in the decision making and to appreciate that it's a dynamic process and as their clinical state changes, they need to be in dialogue with their practitioner. So just summarising that, um, the three key learnings that I've um, taken from this is whatever setting you're in, you've got to use behaviour change strategies. Um, there's a framework with those four key interventions and that you need to be thinking about multidisciplinary approaches. Thank you. And uh, last but not least, we have uh, Mika Van Driel, who's Professor of General Practice at the University of Queensland. Thank, um, thank you, Jill. Um, and um, I first want to declare that I have no conflicts of interest other than that I am a prescriber of antibiotics, so I can contribute to uh, what we're talking about. Um, and um, we've all seen that we've got a problem, and um, if that comes down to a GP prescribing uh, an antibiotic every other day, um, then you can imagine that this is probably not in line with what our guidelines are telling us. Um, so far, we have been um, giving this rhetoric, and apparently it's not working very well. So we need to do something different. And in order to understand what we need to do differently, I thought it's, it would be good to um, dig a little bit deeper into what we know about prescribing. We've seen overall data, but getting to know where the problems are, we need to um, go a bit more granular. These data come from uh, two studies that have used a very similar methodology, BEACH. Um, you're probably familiar with BEACH, which captures prescribing behavior of of established GPs and recent, which is a, 
a project I'm involved in, which uh, does exactly the same for junior uh, for for new colleagues entering the workforce as general practitioners in their vocational training pathway. The good news is that our young doctors are slightly better than the ones that have been practicing for many years. Um, However, there's still a lot of room for improvement, and especially in conditions like uh, patients presenting with cough. So if we look at the interventions, and um, I'll look at the evidence base uh, that we have at the moment, which is quite impressive, um, and Kirsty has already uh, alluded to there's different way, uh, ways you can approach this. You can uh, t uh, target patients, or you can target the GPs, or you can target the interface of patient and, and uh, doctor, which is in the um, clinical setting. And a lot of these different interventions have been trialed, um, many of them separately and some in combination. And, um, but the one that we haven't really touched upon is the one at the bottom, the regulatory interventions. Just to give you an idea of uh, the evidence that we have, um, some people have meta-analyzed this, uh, which is quite a task, um, but the general message that we get from that is that any intervention that has an active component, which makes doctors think about what they're doing, reflect on their own practice, and, and, and take action, uh, those uh, are interventions are more effective than the ones that just pump education or messages out to them. NICE has, in the UK, has done a review of all these interventions more recently, and their conclusion was it needs, whatever we do needs to have multiple components, we need to continue working on the public, and we need to continue to target on, on uh, target GPs, but um, let's think of um, elegant uh, things such as delayed prescribing as well. So let me just um, dig into what hasn't been touched upon much, uh, maybe, and is in some ways uh, sometimes a bit of a taboo. Um, how about regulatory interventions? Well, actually, there are a few simple ones, and it has already been mentioned. Uh, removing the default for a repeat script from all antibiotics. And in fact, in my practice in the, in the prescribing software, it, it is already uh, uh, default is zero. So if I want to um, prescribe a repeat, I actually have to um, add that, or maybe adjust the PBS criteria that um, will make this uh, a little bit harder. We have been very successful in Australia by restricting access to quinolones, and we have a much better um, antimicrobial resistant pro uh, profile for quinolones than many other countries who've been using them generously. But then at the pointy end, at the, at the end where we um, uh, dispense uh, antibiotics, there's this huge dissonance between the pack sizes of the, um, the packs that, that, that um, pharmacists hand out and what we are supposed to prescribe. Uh, for instance, a trimetoprim um, comes in seven tablets, whereas we're prescribing them for three days. So we're basically giving people a license to um, uh, self-medicate um, for the rest. Uh, in some countries, pharmacists buy their medication in, uh, in bulk and then dispense the number of tablets that the doctor um, then prescribes. Another thing uh, that um, I think we need to uh, look at a little bit more um, seriously, and that follows what we've learned uh, from our hospital colleagues, where they have made good, um, uh, uh, have made success by implementing 
uh, accreditation, uh, AMS as part of their accreditation process. Why can't we do that in general practice? Um, and when I um, looked at, uh, at this and saw uh, to, to see if others had been doing this, I actually found a trial in the Netherlands um, recently where they did embed uh, such an intervention in their accreditation process of quality circles, uh, where they, one of the um, tasks was for uh, doctors to set targets specific for their own practice. And they showed a good reduction in, in prescribing of antibiotics and a better um, choice of antibiotics as well. And that was sustained after two years. Now, the Dutch are already very uh, low prescribers. So if they can even get a redu reduction, um, then that, why can't we? So um, just to summarize it, um, I think um, in general practice, we do need to uh, move away from doing one thing and, and um, expecting everyone to start doing the same thing. Um, that doesn't work and we've done some trials in, uh, in Australia where we uh, offered a suite of interventions and offered practices a choice and that was very well received. But how do we accommodate all those preferences? It's, that's, that might be a challenge. We need both um, behavioral as well as regulatory or maybe a better word is facilitating interventions um, that uh, help. Um, because as Kirsty mentioned, um, we all want to do the right thing. Um, and just help us uh, so that it becomes easier for us to do the right thing. And uh, let's um, trial things that have been successful in other places and, and really tailor them to the Australian context, which um, has its own idiosyncrasies at times. And then there's questions that you know, we don't need to discuss at this point, but other countries who have been successful in reducing their antibiotic prescribing um, they, uh, that they've been looking into, can we actually go too far? Because that's something that uh, some of the doctors tell us here. Yeah, no, I can't do um, uh, less than, than, I, uh, I, than I do now. So uh, no miracles, and we can't wait. We have to act. Thank you. So we can have a round of applause for our whole panel. I think they were very interesting, different, uh, but yet complementary presentations. Um, one of the things um, that really surprised me when I came to Australia from the UK, so as a GP, um, and this is all about guidelines and pack sizes, that the standard in those days, so this is going back 15 years ago, in the UK, the standard dose of antibiotics for a UTI was 200 milligrams of trimethoprim twice a day for three days. And that was what we were doing. And I came to Australia and it was, why is trimethoprim 300 milligrams once a day? So it's very, it's fascinating how these different uh, ways of prescribing uh, vary from country to country. And um, it just makes you question things when you're in that situation. Um, I'd like to open the floor to questions, and there's someone who's very eager at the back there. Um, I think I'm doing the wandering microphone. <laughs> uh, I'm Sandra Fitzgerald. I'm currently one of the clinical editors with Hunter New England Health Pathways, but my previous job for 10 years was as an NPS facilitator doing the educational visiting. Um, and one of the topics, and someone from the NPS might be able to enlighten me on when this was, was around antibiotic resistance and looking at respiratory tract infections in general practice. Um, was that five or six years ago? 
2012-13, so what, what's that, five, six years ago. So, um, and at that time, I worked very closely with John Ferguson, trying to set up some antimicrobial stewardship in general practice that would mirror what's happening in the hospital system, because I think the opt-in approaches we're using aren't really working to reduce prescribing. And I love, Mika, what you said around the regulatory approach, because I think it's kind of come to that. It's a significant problem. We all know it is. And I think the work we're all doing in this space is fantastic. But I think there needs to be a more hardline approach. Um, and there needs to be an easy or some sort of way to set up stewardship in general practice. Um, so, Robert, I think my question is to you. <laughs> um, you were saying that in the next little while you're going to intensify efforts to reduce unnecessary prescribing in the community. I'd love to know what that looks like and whether it's going to take that kind of hardline so, approach. Righto. First of all, I'm an intensive care doctor, okay? <laughs> Declaration of conflict of interest. Um, I think we're really unfair on general practitioners, okay? Because the funding model for general practice actually encourages this behaviour, all right? So if you've got a six-minute consultation and you need to get someone to tell you what's wrong with them, work out in your head what you think it is, and then work out whether you need to do something about it and explain that to the patient. In six minutes, it's a tall ask, okay? So in the end, what I think's wrong is we're, we're actually the funding model is producing rapid turnover um, where, uh, unfortunately, it's much easier to give the patient a script or a test or a consult than it is to give them a half an hour explanation of why it's viral and they don't need an antibiotic. So, I think the funding model is what's driving the practice, all right? But I'm not a GP, and there are lots of GPs here who can agree or disagree. Um, and I don't disagree that we need a that, it, that ultimately a combination of education, um, strong arming with letters from the chief medical officer, and uh, changes to pack sizes and regulation may be the things we need to help. Right? But it's undoubtedly in the end going to be a combination of all those things, like it has been in hospitals where specialists like me get berated by the microbiologist, by the pharmacist, by the nurse, by the patient's relatives, and you end up having to pull your head in and act appropriately. And anyone else? Yes. Thank you for sticking up for GPs. <laughs> Thanks very much. Um, so, so one thing I didn't have time to touch on in any detail in my presentation was actually exactly on your issue of regulation. And just to make it um, really clear to the audience that currently the Australian government is actively reviewing the pharmaceutical benefit scheme listings for antibiotics at the moment, particularly for repeat prescriptions. So this is a, this is a regulatory lever um, in order to identify ways to support better prescribing. Um, so while uh, reducing repeats, it's absolutely true. I think Mike has said about um, default software um, as being one way, setting the defaults to zero. Um, that I guess that's what you'd call a soft regulatory option that depends on the prescribers all um, uh, 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 working together um, in order to achieve that universally across the system. Um, the harder regulatory option is actually looking at the, the pharmaceutical benefits scheme itself um, and what is allowable, and that's what we are looking at um, in the department in working with the PBAC as well. So this is going to be a consultation process that we're going to be going through, and we will be consulting and really encourage everybody to get involved about that. Um, uh, definitely key stakeholder groups involved. And, and just to also say that we are bringing together a group of um, RSEGP and ACRAM um, NCAS as well um, in looking at exactly the things that Micah had um, on her presentation in relation to just a, a whole lot better way of involving general practitioners in appropriate prescribing.
And, and I think that's a, a, you know, it's a good, uh, regulation is a good thing, but maybe we should look at the funding models within primary care. Um, and uh, I, I don't know if Mika wants to comment on this, and I, I know in Australia there's been a lot of resistance against capitation models, um, but you know, maybe that is something that we also need to look at um, so that we can actually have the conversations that we want to have with patients. Uh, but Mika wants to say something. Um, no, thank you, thank you uh, for, uh, for that. And um, I fully agree. I mean, it is inevitable that GPs are, um, you know, in the firing line because we are the first port of call. And so um, most patients will not need to go beyond GPs. So, um, yeah, it's inevitable. But having said that, I also think that, that um, maybe we need to change a little bit the rhetoric because... That's why I said this might be controversial and people won't like it, regulatory, no one wants to be uh, regulated. Um, and, but actually the, the uh, intent of the regulations is to make it easier for GPs to do the right thing. Uh, there is no GP who, wants to, who says, I want to contribute to antimicrobial resistance. Absolutely not. We all feel very um, obliged to provide the best services to our patients and uh, to create an environment that, that, is, that facilitates that and does the right thing by the community as a whole uh, is, is an important way of looking at it. Just going back to um, peer pressure and, uh, well, not peer pressure, but peer guidance, um, I'm delighted to say that when I worked in the UK um, 15 years ago, I worked in a general practice and we embarked on a programme to stop uh, using antibiotics in otitis media in kids. Um, there was one, there were six partners, one of whom was um, reluctant to change practice, but over time we got there. And by the time I left the UK, we'd reduced the use of antibiotics almost exclusively in the whole pro practice population, with the exception of the very young and the very old, and whom we didn't withhold antibiotics. Moving to Australia, when I did my 50 odd hours to register here, I despaired. Um, in the pharmacy that I was working in, every other prescription seemed to be for antibiotics. And antibiotics that, with the exception of quinolones, there were, there were things like Augmentin Forte. Um, my, my, my problem is here with doctor shopping, um, that there is a problem, and, and it, not just with antibiotics, it can also be uh, in, it's a problem in opiate use and other things. Um, I'm wondering, do you think there should be more um, tighter restriction. It's quite difficult in the UK to move between general practices um, and I think that would be better if patients were more tied to single practices here. So that's capitation and registration. <laughs> Anyone like to uh, comment on that? So clearly one of the things um, that is addressing both or was going to address both capitation and um, patients have a, having a medical home was healthcare homes for people with with um, chronic disease. Now, um, that was the way that was designed. So you'd nominate a practice that you were a patient of and that that practice would get a capitated payment for your care for your chronic obstructive airways disease or, what, or heart failure or what have you. Unfortunately, that scheme sounds like it's fallen in a hole. But uh, the, so there is some um, a, a taste within Australia for at least trying that in comorbid and people with chronic diseases. Anybody else on the panel? I had an anecdote, if it's helpful. Um, when we did the GP naps, which I haven't talked about in much detail, but 
um, we went to various practices and looked at their antibiotic consumption and there were some standout practices that were really low consumers and that were surprisingly um, low socioeconomic areas. Um, you know, they had people with, who, who, you know, who were... Uh, you know, um, groups that you would imagine might be high consumers of antibiotics. And the reflection on those practices when we, we went back and fed their data back to them and, and had discussions via webinar, their practice principal um, was leading the ship and had made a commitment and it was visible to everyone else in the practice. And um, they actually said to us, I was so interested to hear, that they felt they trained their patient cohort not to expect antibiotics because they were having the same discussion whichever doctor they saw in that practice. One doctor wasn't undermining the other. Um, and and um, there was a consistent behaviour across the practice. And we thought they were terrific exemplars and really wanted to take what they were doing and, and talk to other practices about it. So. Um, and the other reflection I had was that the second best prescribing practice that we saw were mostly UK doctors. Um, that was interesting too. Sorry, can I just ask a question? I shouldn't be asking questions from the panel. <laughs> Do you know if they had access to the antibiotic guidelines? Um, so I think, in fact, um, there were... I think the answer is yes at that particular practice. And, and of the ones we audited, there were two that didn't. And by the time we'd done the webinar feedback, they'd gone out and got it. Um, so they, they just didn't have an awareness that things had changed. And they were, they were, you know, in the discussions we were having, they were telling us that they were, they were really doing what they'd always done. And, um, and, you know, for us to say, look, that's not what's recommended now, they, they went out and got the guidelines. There's a good question here. There's going to be a collective groan around the room because I'm, I'm another um, POMI refugee. <laughs> um, my name is Angus Thompson and I'm from the University of Tasmania. Um, on this subject of trying to help GPs, I used to work as a prescribing advisor with general practice in the UK. And 12 years ago, I was setting up prompts within GP clinical systems where GPs could actually put in the indication for which they wanted to prescribe and they would then be presented with a list of drugs which were consistent with the Primary Health England recommendations. Do you think we'll ever get to a system which helps GPs make wise decisions that's as seamless as that? I think that that's a really, really good way of doing it. And we know that audit and feedback that is personalized and, and tailored to the, 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 the prescriber is, is helpful. And this is also what we do with our registrars. Um, we give them a report of their own prescribing and we benchmark it uh, against their peers and, and also give recommendations of how it fits or doesn't fit within what guidelines expect us to do. And we think that is um, uh, effective. And why is it effective? I think it be because it facilitates or it promotes reflection and, and that culture of, of um, looking at your own um, um, actions and um, testing if they are still um, what is desirable and staying up to date in that way and, and I think that culture is something that we need in everything we do, not only antibiotics. It is about am I doing the right thing, is this the right thing by this patient and, and not being complacent and saying, oh, I've been in practice for 30 years, I know now what I need to do. So that is part, but I think it's part of a whole range of things that um, need to be done. Um, but if we can embed that culture, and this is why we're so strong in the, in the registrars and continuing this, if we can embed that culture into the next generation of doctors, uh, we have a bit more hope, I think. Thank you. Um, so one of the things that may ultimately help is the um, APRA, the Registration Authority, 
has, is changing the medical um, uh, CPD program to um, a, a, a professional improvement framework. And within that, 30% uh, of what you do has to be uh, data and audit of your practice or outcomes of your patients. Okay. Now, I was on the expert advisory group that was that wrote the paper that, that that led to that, and there was a really strong feeling that people actually needed to start to look at their own data, their own patient outcomes, and what they were doing, and either review that in peer review or review it via some college process, so that um, there's there's people become uh, get an understanding of where they sit versus their peers in whether it be use of antibiotics or referrals to specialists or anything that um, data and a, a process to investigate your own practice becomes uh, embedded within the system. So we, I would hope that in 10 years' time the registrars that are going through programs like you're describing will continue to do that and they'll use that for their, their registration as evidence of, of uh, review of their practice. And so it'll be a self-sustaining process. Yep. If I could just make a, a very quick comment too. You're probably all aware of the letter that the Chief Medical Officer wrote to the 30% of top prescribers of antibiotics in general practice. So there were a couple of different approaches in, in those letters to try to determine what's the best kind of information um, to feed back to doctors in order to determine a change in practice. Um, the results of, of that um, tri uh, trial are going to be coming out very soon. So um, I encourage us all to keep an eye out for that. Um, but the early results that we're finding and that it, is it most definitely does have um, a positive impact, these kind of nudge um, approaches, particularly from somebody like the CMO. Um, my name's Suzanne Werris. I too am a former clinical services specialist with NPS, so I was educating GPs throughout Western and Northwestern New South Wales for seven years and did the um, upper respiratory tract and, uh, antibiotic program as well as the antibiotic resistance one a few years ago. So I would just like a question for Rachel because I'm no longer in the NPS um, team. Is uh, the approach, well a hardline approach for GPs as far as reminding them about clear guidelines, but a softline approach for GPs when it comes to relating to their patients in the consulting room. And one of the resources that were developed by NPS was the tear-off pad. Uh, for the GPs to hand to every patient who came in, um, explaining to them what, their, what a virus was, um, but also giving them very practical symptomatic relief that they could use for the symptoms and take away with them. Because we also know that patients absorb about 30% of what a GP tells them in a very quick consult consultation. So as a reminder for them, it's helpful and it replaces the prescription. Uh, is the NPS still providing those? I handed them out to my GPs. They were extremely appreciative, but I noticed the next year when the flu season came around, they were not available. Is that still resource still available? Yeah, so the original um, symptomatic management pad was um, developed sort of some time ago and probably in conjunction with that 2012 program. Um, that was sort of, um, there is a reincarnation still available, so we call it sort of the respiratory tract infection um, action plan, but it's got, it's the same, um, idea is that it's providing a prescription of advice as opposed to an antibiotic prescription um, for those GPs. So it's actually, um, the action plan is actually available in GP software as well as downloadable and also in hard copy form as well. So there's several ways that GPs can access that, um, that tool. But that's putting the onus on the GP to actually go in and order them. So I'm thinking more in terms of 
GPs receiving those resources at the beginning of the flu season um, or their practice somehow making them available to every practice so it becomes just a systematic part of their process. But it also includes that information that somebody spoke to about, <coughs> pardon me, uh, about um, underestimating under duration of symptoms and overestimating the benefit of um, antibiotics. Um, so that it is much more proactive from the regulatory point of view rather than putting the onus on GPs to once again um, remember to order them. Mm, um, yeah, so, um, yeah, so the action plan is available within GP software, so GPs can actually get it within their electronic software. Um, it is quite expensive for us to sort of send out... Um, the sort of hard copy forms to every sort of GP practice, and particularly some GP practices may get them in and, and not find them useful within their sort of consult consultation style. Um, but certainly it's a resource that um, if we are sort of doing a GP um, mail out, and we have done some mail outs for um, um, the five or 600 Medicine Insight practices, which were actually evaluated to um, and sort of showed some reduction in, in antibiotic prescribing. But in those sort of mailouts, we do include that action plan, and it will certainly, we're going to be running a um, new antibiotics visiting program um, middle of next year, and, and that resource will certainly be, I guess, reintroduced um, to GPs who aren't familiar with it, definitely. And Robert just wants to say a word to that one as well. I was just asking if I could ask a question. Oh, please do, yes, that's, that's good. Questions are good. So um, there are two areas that, that are uh, conflicted, I guess, and, we, and you mentioned one of them, which is strep sore throat. So um, I work in intensive care. We happen to provide intensive care cardiothoracic services to New Caledonia, and uh, we probably do two or three rheumatic valve replacements a week on patients from New Caledonia, 800,000 people in New Caledonia, uh, who had uh, strep sore throat when they were children and went on to develop rheumatic valvular heart disease and that's what's happening in our Aboriginal population at the moment. So I guess that's an example of where the tension between being a good steward of antibiotics and, and having to give antibiotics for an appropriate indication comes up. And the other one that always comes up in hospitals is sepsis and septic shock and septic patients around someone comes in sick and you don't know what the hell it is so you end up, or I end up, barreling a whole heap of broad spectrum antibiotics while we wait two days for cultures. Robert, do you, do, you read the, do you read the guidelines before you? No. <laughs> it's a public hospital. We don't have the guidelines. Uh, you do have the guidelines. <laughs> and, and I think, you, you know... The tension, okay. Do you want to discuss the tension? Yeah. tension? Well, uh, well the, sepsis, the sepsis tension, thank you for raising that because that's some... That's another thing that's uh, exercised our expert groups over 18 months and it's a very difficult um, decision to make. You know, it's that balance of stewardship and what's best for the very sick patient in front of you. And do you give that patient you know, a penum, for instance, because of the, we've been very good at, at um, not using it, yeah, protecting it, or do you give them, as we recommend, a broad range of other antibiotics in, in order to try and keep protecting the dependent. It's, it's as much a philosophical question and it's, uh, it's really vexed the group and we've wavered and uh, gone from one recommendation to another. I think we're there now, but we're going to end up, you know, depending on where you live, you might end up getting four antibiotics for your sepsis. But we think appropriate antibiotics.
Yeah, and, and though it's rare, it only takes one case in general practice where you don't prescribe antibiotics and the person ends up in hospital or even dies to really change the way you practice. And, you know, I mean, this is the complexity of, of um, how we have to work. Um, yeah. uh, hi, Sue Phillips, Therapeutic Guidelines. My question's for Kirsty. Um, I was, you know, you've really given a great presentation on all the things that are happening in hospital with antimicrobial stewardship and all the knowledge we've gained. And Robert showed, you know, the gains and the reduction in prescribing. So it seems that we're just at the cusp of being really ready to do that in, in general practice. Um, so we've got all the knowledge, you know, the research knowledge about which if interventions are effective, but we really need to help GPs because they're working in isolation. They really need a whole structure around them for this to happen. It's not going to happen with just continuously directing at the individual practitioner. So, you know, we, we could have a whole AMS program for GPs with in leadership and education, interventions, evaluation, all the component parts that we've got in hospital now that have made a difference. And it feels like, you know, we really should just bite the bullet and, 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 and design and, and roll out such a program. So, I mean, is, is that what you were referring to towards the end of your talk? <laughs> what I think we have to get to, a, a comprehensive program in general practice that's led, hopefully, by the GP leadership. Mm. Um, you know, I, I, we can't do it from no. hospitals, but, but um, I think, um, yeah, showing the leadership this is really important and a collective activity. Mm. I think, I think mm. you know, when AMS in hospitals started and there were a few of us doing it in isolated hospitals, we were outliers and we felt mm. very isolated. Yeah. And then every, when accreditation came, everybody got on board and we were part of a community and it was normal to do what we were doing and, and people expected to be audited and get feedback and, and, and none of that was abnormal anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and if, if, this, if, the, if the organisational culture changed such that, that this was a collective activity um, and, and it was normal to have as part of your clinical workflow in your EMR that the, you use therapeutic guidelines and that you had a group educational activity and, and yeah, you're not hitting it just individual GPs. Mm, that's with, right. With, I mean, not to denigrate the wonderful work that happens with academic detailing, and it is important, but I think there's something to be said for doing it collectively too. Um, and your practice has got, you know, the notes posters and all the information about why. Yeah, that's right. And, and I think the link to accreditation as well, which I think doesn't happen in general practice, whereas it does in the hospitals. No, and I think, Sue, the other, uh, Kirsty and I were talking about this this morning, about that we need to have an approach that includes all of us because we are kind of silos mm. now. You've got the silo of general practice, the silo of hospitals, and, um, and we, we are all part of the same spectrum. So looking at it as, 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 as a spectrum and bringing in expertise from hospital, from uh, infectious disease specialists and bringing in um, uh, vice versa, uh, general practice uh, expertise into the hospital, I think we need to really work closer together to design systems and, and, um, and programs that can work both ways. Mm -hmm.
Can I just um, just say again, I, I mentioned before about the group that the Chief Medical Officers put together comprising RACGP and ACRIM and, and NCAS, and it's to precisely this end, because you're quite right about the isolation of individual general practitioners. This absolutely must be handled at a systems level, and the, the accreditation piece is so important because we think that one of the major drivers for antibiotic use down in hospitals has been the Commission in Safety and Quality Standard um, in relation to stewardship. So so very important point. Okay. I, I mean, there's a lot coming out here about working collaboratively, teamwork, multidisciplinary approaches, silos, isolation, um, which uh, we could talk about for quite a while. I'm Johanna from the Society of Hospital Pharmacists. So I have a slightly different question for you on a slightly different angle. Um, and I'd just be really interested to hear, um, some of you may be aware that last year SHPA did a prevalence survey of medicine shortages in hospitals. And of the 1,500 shortages that were reported on a daily basis, 40% were antimicrobials. I'm just wondering whether the strategy looks at all or has any consideration of the impact of those shortages on optimal prescribing. That's the story of my life. <laughs> when these shortages happen, it falls at the feet of the AMS committee in the hospital and, and what are we going to do about it? And, and it's chaotic and it's not well organised and I think we've been trying... Um, I think it was Robert mentioned before that, that health is in hospitals, at least it's largely managed at a state level. So our advocacy has been happening at the state government level to try to get some coordination about this because you get into that terrible problem, don't you, of stockpiling? And, and, um, and then because drug A's run out, everyone switches to drug B and drug B runs out. Um, so, yeah, it's a very big everyday problem for us. And, and um, So... Um at a national level, the TGA, the Therapeutic Goods Administration, uh, has started to do some work around what they might do about shortages. So one of the problems is they don't hear about the shortage any earlier than you do, so you can't do much about it if you hear that we're going to run out of heparin next week or we're going to run out of vancomycin next week. Um, so uh, they're doing some work around uh, whether there might be uh, different, if you're running out of a critical drug, whether there might be different processes for getting alternate supplies registered straight away um, and things like that. So there is work going on at a national level to try and, uh, particularly in antibiotics and a whole heap of other critical, what are considered critical drugs, mm -hmm. to try and get a process in place to cope with it much better. Thank you, Claire Weston and PS Medicine Wise. We've talked quite a lot about how leadership is needed within the clinical workforce. But I was just interested in the views of the panels on how we mobilise the consumer leadership and in terms of involving them in this discussion because they are the other very important part. Unless we can get the message across to them, it's um, a very hard task. So just thoughts from the panel on that. So consumers. We haven't got a consumer on the panel as such, which may be... We should have. Um, who would like to take the consumer voice? Things like patient decision aids to try and improve uh, collaborative decision making between clinicians and consumers are one of the things the Commission's been looking at doing. Uh, the Commission's developed uh, and it's hosted on the RAC uh, GP website uh, a a learning package for GPs about how you might do um, collaborative decision making and, and um, shared decision making. And we did produce some um, patient decision aids around um, upper respiratory tract infections, sore throat and otitis media. 
that are being trialled at the moment out in the system to see whether they improve things or make things worse. So a combination of a training module for the general practitioner or the specialist practitioner uh, around shared decision making and a shared decision aid may be something that uh, would be useful and that was helped up as co-developed um, with the um, consumers groups so they know about it and they and there were all the, all the um, attributes of consumer friendly documents put into the patient decision aid helped by the consumers. I can just add um, that we um, know um, already for a very long time that um, it's actually not so difficult to convince uh, patients that they don't need an antibiotic. Um, I did a study, I think it was 2005, asking patients what they um, wanted um, when they saw their GP with a sore throat. So they actually had a sore throat and they were seeing their GP. And we gave them 13 reasons why um, they could be visiting their GP. I want an antibiotic was one of those reasons. That was um, number 11 on their priorities list. Whereas if we, we asked the GPs the same thing, and it was in the top three for GPs. Um, and that was not really new. I mean, that, that message was reinforced uh, time after time. Yet uh, we still um, um, hear uh, a lot of people say, well, the consumer demands this, and, um, and I think we are underestimating consumers. Uh, consumers are wise enough to know what's good for them. And, um, and might, uh, you know, just by asking what is important to you, um, that might be a good way to, uh, to even do good medicine in six minutes. Yeah, just a, a very quick comment. So I'm very cognizant of the point you're making. Um, we've got um, a big focus on consumers on the new AMR website. So we're targeting it to health professionals, to researchers, the various groups, and really trying to make that inaccessible, plain English language um, with infographics as well so that people really get what we're talking about and that we're hoping we can get consumers engaged in that. And given the popularity of the internet, and um, particularly with younger people, um, we're finding that the, that the the hits we're getting, it's proving a quite successful way of communicating. Can um, I just say that the, the current version of the guidelines emphasises shared decision making, um, watchful waiting, delayed prescriptions, and links out to all of the patient information where appropriate. So even if it's not at the general practice, we know where to go. Um, I've been involved in teaching shared decision making for many years and I think one of the things we have to remember if we're going to adopt a shared decision making model that there will be some people, though a small minority, where you do the shared decision making, you discuss the risks, the benefits, uh, with pushing, pushing the nudging saying you don't need antibiotics and if the patient then says, well I've taken all that into account, uh, hearing what you say, I still want some amoxil then you know you have to think if you're really a shared decision-making advocate you either go against the antimicrobial resistance message or you go against you know having that 20-minute conversation so it's a very interesting um, you know tension that we do have um, we're coming to a close uh, it's almost lunchtime um, what I would just like the panel to do for the last few minutes is one to two sentences summing up your, the main message you would like to give Australia on this topic. Two sentences. So we, we would like to say, before you prescribe an antibiotic, read the guidelines.
Oops. <laughs> that was very good, very succinct. I guess we'll, we'll all advertise for our own services. Um, I'd like everyone to go and have a look at Aura and, and the Commission's website and see the information that's there because there is a whole heap of fantastic information there and uh, to share it with your colleagues and friends so that uh, lots more people use those resources. They've been paid for by the Commonwealth. They took a lot of effort and uh, it would be really great to see them being used much more commonly. I guess the message from MPS to consumers is um, don't, um, don't underestimate respiratory tract infections and also don't um, overestimate the benefits of antibiotics um, for treating this as well. Thank you. And just to say that um, uh, AMR continues to be a priority for the Australian Government. Um, reviewing our current strategy, really keen to get the lessons learned out of that in developing our next strategy going forward. I was just going to say we can affect change to improve the way that antimicrobials are used across the whole spectrum um, and it's going to take a coordinated um, uh, intervention with, with um, multidisciplinary stakeholders involved. GPs want to do the right thing by their patients, so uh, let's help them do that uh, in, in an easy and efficient and effective way. Thank you. I'm just going to say a, a few words as well, because I have that prerogative. Um, we've been talking about antibiotic usage in general practice for the last 25 years. Um, we have been hopefully educating our doctors coming up, our health professionals coming up, we're still having the conversations. I am optimistic. I think we can change. I think there is change, but we have still to keep going at this. We have to look at education across the whole spectrum. Um, we have to work together. We have to be collaborative. We have to break down the silos. We will get there. And let's hope it's not another 25 years. So I'd like to thank the panel. I'd like to thank your participation. We've had some really interesting questions. We could probably go on for a lot longer, um, but we won't. Um, and I'd like uh, to hand you some gifts for... Sorry, there's no gifts for everybody. Though we, we all did some work, but it's for the panel. So thank you very much. And um, hope to see you again soon.